Welcome back to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film, Jaws, one minute at a time or thereabouts. I'm your co-host, MJ Smith. And I am Sarah Buddery, and we are joined by a guest this week. Very, very excited uh, to have a a guest back with us. Uh, I think there's only a few episodes left on our schedule where we are sans guest. So uh, we're pretty action-packed from from here until the very end. Uh, And this week joining us to talk about the first instalment in Indianapolis month is uh, Rachel Pearson. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Hi, MJ. I am very excited to finally be on Let's Jaws for a minute and talk about Jaws with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yes. Wait, I mean, it feels like a very long time ago that we, we popped you down on our schedule and it's like, oh yeah, it'll be like next year or something. And it's just, you've been patiently waiting and the, the time has finally come. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I remember the, the tweet going out saying, oh, I would like to have some guests on, on the podcast. And I was like, I'm on the Indianapolis beach. Like as, as, soon as, I, as, soon as, as soon as I saw that tweet, I was like, must go on podcast. Must talk about mm-hmm. best film speech ever. <laughs> Yeah, and you've got the the first uh, first little chunk of it as well. So mm-hmm. uh, rather cruelly, we have split up the Indianapolis speech into, I think, four episodes. It sort of spills a little bit into a fifth as well. Um, so this is the beginning of Indianapolis month, uh, as we have mentioned. So... Uh, strap yourselves in guys this is uh <laughs> this is gonna be a lot of very really really deep dives i think because we are uh talking about sort of like small chunks of this very very well-known speech and this great monologue and this great scene in the film um but we're really gonna do our best to sort of like talk about it in in the sort of bite-sized chunks that we've broken it down into so uh we might uh overlap a little bit between episodes but um i'm sure the listeners will forgive us uh but before we get started talking about uh this scene uh rachel you uh need to answer the jaws (laughs) question uh hopefully hopefully you're prepared for this oh yeah Um, i've had many months to prepare (laughs) um so what is it what is it about jaws uh that you love so much that uh Made you want to come on to, to this and uh, talk about us. Yeah, well, talk about us, talk about it. I'll happily us. talk about you guys as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, mainly Jaws. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, like so many people, I saw Jaws before I was ready to see films that have um, that much <laughs> horror in them. Um, I think there's a general consensus among maybe my generation and close generations that Jaws is like this happy summer, you know, adventure romp, but actually it's it's pretty horrific as well. Um, so I think I saw it around uh, seven because I'd been watching some of the documentaries that uh, Ron and Valerie Taylor made, the, the guys that were the shark experts on Jaws, and was just showing a bit of an interest in sharks. And my dad thought, hey, uh, you like sharks? I've got some sharks for you. <laughs> um, brilliant parenting, parenting 101 there. Thanks, dad. Um, 
so I watched yours and was obviously terrified, vowed never to go into the water again. I, I barely even wanted to get in the bath. It, it was it was that scarring. I have bathed since. Um, everyone will be pleased to know. Um, but, but yeah, I think it, it was so, it was, I was so also so thrilled by it. And I think um, sort of after around sort of 30 years after seeing it that first time, um, it's kind of been like a companion, like a, a like a film companion. You know, you have that concept of a of a comfort film. You know, you've got a you've got a cold or something. You stay at home. You watch that because it's like slightly too horrific to be comforting. It's kind of just been this companion from when I've you know been really little, really thrilled, really interested in these like characters that are all so incredibly different and start to change each other. There's there's so much to get from Jaws. Uh, in lots of different ways but in terms of psychology and you know understanding people's damage I think that was really interesting as I grew up and then I think um, it kind of just was that kind of constant companion like I say you know I I was really interested in filmmaking Jaws is uh, you know one of those films that's always drawn upon to you know teach various different methods and then thirdly I love Jaws so much because of the legends the myths and the, the stories behind the making of the film of which there are so many about the Indianapolis speech as well I just think yeah it's just such a fascinating film that's just always been there and met me kind of where I am at in my life I think um and it's just the perfect film. Like, I, I, it was about 10 years ago where I just kind of was like, people asking me what my favorite film was. And I was like, so hard to pick one. And then I gave some real thought to it. And I was like, well, it's Jaws. It's always been Jaws. It's always been there. So mm-hmm. I also had, like, I think maybe my first crush ever on um, Martin Brody, on Roy Scheider. Mm-hmm. Mainly because of this black <laughs> turtleneck that he wears in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Preaching to the choir here. <laughs> um, yes, uh, before we distract ourselves talking about lovely Roshida, we'll get a, we'll get stuck into talking about this uh, this scene. The the turtleneck does make a brief appearance, yeah. so I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be able to talk about that. Um, so the timestamp of this week's scene is from one hour twenty nine minutes and twenty nine seconds to one hour thirty minutes and twenty one seconds. So this is our shortest uh, bit of Indianapolis. I think it's around 52 seconds um, this week's scene. And uh, the timestamps for the next few weeks might be a little bit tricky. So we'll try and sort of give you guys uh, listening the the sort of uh, quote or bit that it ends on. So you can make sure that you're watching the right bit if you are watching the clips and then listening to us. Um, so... Uh, picking up from from last week's scene, which was one of the hardest points we've ever had to stop uh, the the clip, um, we are now getting into the the beginning of the Indianapolis speech, and you sort of sense this change in the mood and change in the atmosphere as as Quint begins to talk. Um, so uh, goes starts off by saying, "A Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side." Um, that's that's where the speech begins and where we leave it is uh, shortly after Quint says uh, no distress signal had been sent um, and then he takes a, a little sip of his drink and that's where we leave it. Um, a slightly different uh, scene summary, <laughs> I guess, this week uh, because it really is just Quint talking. Uh, there's there's plenty of things that we can we can talk about the things that he is saying, uh, but that is uh, that is it for for this week's scene. So. 
Rachel, I am sure you have got uh, plenty of things that you uh, you picked up on in this scene that you want to share with us. So uh, we'll hand over to you first with something that that you uh, that you noticed in this. Mm, yeah, um, I think uh, like we were saying before, it's such a difficult uh, it's such a difficult uh, thing to compartmentalize this like whole speech. I found myself kind of watching up to the point at which we're talking today and then just being so captivated by Robert Shaw's performance. Um, even, you know, 37 years of kind of watching this film, it's still just so chilling um, and his performance is uh, incredible. Having said that, my first note is uh, uh, about Hooper's pink top. I just think it's really on brand and really soft and I just think it really like just is very, yeah, very much in keeping with kind of his kind of, uh, like, softness, really. And I just I just remember it being the first thing that I kind of noticed. Like, it's such a different colour for the colour palette of Jaws. And it's just this really, really kind of soft pink colour that just is, you know, it's quite a vulnerable colour. And I kind of was thinking his, uh, Matt Hooper's reaction to you know, when he, he realizes he's, he's told that Quint was on the Indianapolis um, and then how quiet and how focused and how captivated he is for the whole of the, for the whole of the speech. Uh, and this, this section in particular, he's just, he's in a very much kind of like passive kind of role. And I just kind of think that some of the wardrobe decisions for this for this kind of scene really kind of reflect where each of the characters are at you know like Brody's in the in the lovely dark polo neck faded into the background you know he's Mm -hmm. he's he's listening in but as well as being just a very kind of like lovely pink top it's just a it just struck me as something that was really um kind of very much in keeping with how how Hooper must be feeling while he's watching and listening to Quint sort of begin this story yeah i think it also you know we know his history with boats and while it's not nothing right because he was in the america's cup or whatever um he is very much this sort of northeastern united states upper class like you know uh waspy white anglo-saxon protestant type and you know he's the guy wearing the sperry topsiders which are the classic boat shoe and the 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 soft pink you know semi-button-up sweater goes to that image as well like you said it's really on brand for him like that's absolutely i think something you would wear on your downtime on the sort of regattas that you uh you would find in the America's cup or whatever like that. It's just very much fits that time and place. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like we, we spoke obviously in last week's scene about the <laughs> Hooper unbuttoning uh, said <laughs> shirt, but I, I don't think we made any <laughs> comment or reference about the, the color. So I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit now as not, uh, not picking up on that or not sort of seeing any significance in that. But it's i mean if you're going with sort of the very stereotypical gender views which don't really exist now because you know plenty of of men Mm. wear pink and in the 70s men wore pink as well and Mm. prior to that it's not 
you know, there's nothing about it that means it is like a feminine colour, but, you know, you walk into a section of, of the store where they're selling things for, for babies and the girl stuff is pink and the boy stuff is blue and that's just kind of the way it is because that's what right. society has deemed are the correct colours for each gender, which is nonsense. Uh, I will not uh, sidetrack myself with my uh, gender as a construct uh, uh, speech, but um, yeah, the it's therefore, I think, in this scene, uh, an interesting... Um, choice that that he is in this sort of like soft quote feminine color because um we did sort of say i think in last week about you know that the hooper is me talking about hooper's chest hair again <laughs> but has like a, a a hairier and therefore you know quote manlier appearance than than even quint does and you can sort of see both of them have some have some buttons undone but then by contrast you know wearing this very soft color um, I think is just a really interesting choice and a perfect choice for that that character and with what you're saying, MJ, as well as you know, this him being this um, wealthier sort of you know uh, used to being on, on on yachts and boat races and regattas and all that sort of thing. Like the the costume choices made for him as a for Hooper as a character are perfect. Um, and Quint, I think, has. I think Quint wears the same shirt the entire time they're on the Orca. It's this sort of like mm. denim denim type of sort of like utility shirt, lots of pockets, very practical. Um, and this this kind of green jacket um, type of thing. So he is, is costume choices is very sort of like practical, very rugged. Everything is weathered yeah. and worn. And uh, I think, I mean, Brody at least starts off quite practically dressed because he's, you know, he's he's got the rubbers uh, <laughs> that that he's packed, you know, the waterproofs and everything that he was instructed to to take with him. But um, yeah, it's so much to be said about these characters, or that we can learn about these characters just from the the wardrobe choices. So always, always something that I like to to talk about and and pick up on is is what the characters are wearing and what that means for them. Mm. And there's a there's a point near the beginning of the speech where Quint kind of really kind of kind of casually but very purposefully kind of flips his hat off i think it's maybe the first time yeah. he takes his hat off in the film from what i remember and it's it's you know it's put back on later but it's kind of quite uh it's it's significant i think because he's about to tell us and tell the other characters probably the worst experience of his entire life that shaped his whole life his you know um but also you know one of the biggest naval disasters or tragedies in history um with so many lives lost it's it's almost like you know this is a respectful act like I don't talk about this you know a lot I don't talk about it with you know just anybody and I show respect by taking my hat off Mm -hmm. yeah it's um that's something that I'm glad you brought that up because that was on my list to bring up too it's something I just noticed for the first time when I got the 4k last year uh and it, yeah, it absolutely is that sign of respect of, you know, here you take your hat off to pray, you take your hat off to hear the national anthem, you know, any anything involving, well, praying doesn't involve the troops. Sometimes it does. Anyway, but like anything, like that's like a, a show of respect for anything. Like if something's honoring mm. the military or whatever, you're supposed to remove your hat, um, things like that. Um, so... 
Yeah, I think it definitely has that on. I think it's such a great a great choice to remove the hat too. Like I, I've never realized until I saw the 4K how much that informs the character of like paying respect to his fallen you know brothers um, mm. in in this. Yeah, I didn't even write the hat thing down in in my notes. So again, just. Uh... <laughs> kicking myself for not picking up on that i think we've spoken we've spoken previously there's been moments where quint has sort of like lifted his his hat slightly i mean Mm -hmm. it happened um just a few moments ago um when he's sort of you know telling hooper to to feel under his cap and uh earlier in the film as well when the the boat is going past and he sort of like slightly lifts his his cap up to see the you know the chaos that is is going on on the docks as he's as he's gliding past grinning to himself um but this I'm I'm trying to think if there's a moment in the film that we see him without without the hat on prior to this. Like I'm 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 struggling to think, and I think I might have to <laughs> uh, go back through the the film with a, an even finer tooth comb the next time I I watch it in full. But the next um, time you I do think... a minute by minute podcast, of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually I I with our guest who is on uh, next week, who conveniently lives in the same house as me, um, he wants to watch the film in full before coming back on the episode. So I was like, don't watch it without me because I really want to <laughs> really watch Jaws. Um, classic. Uh, as if I can't get enough of this film, I just, you know, demand uh, to watch it in full. Um, again. <laughs> but yeah, I I think this, I think you could be right, Rachel. I think this could be the the first time we see we see him without his hat on and even if it's not it's still significant that he takes it off uh for this moment because we've spoken a lot about how quint is from this sort of previous generation and that is you know both good and bad things you know the slightly off color jokes is very much a uh a thing of of the past potentially uh not always but um and the the way he talks about certain certain people as well and certain characters quite a lot of what quint does is very old-fashioned so uh yeah him him sort of like removing removing his cap when he's um beginning this story i think is is just a really really nice touch it is absolutely what this character would do and it does create this very um somber mood pretty much straight away and and this is something we've spoken about in you know very very obviously drunk quint in the previous scene and this i don't know how long after you know he'd sobered up this was this was all filmed or whether he was completely sober but it um you do sort of get the sense that he is a little fresher than he was (laughs) in the previous scene um and it's perfect for for this scene because it is this sobering moment. You know, it's this uh, very serious monologue that he's that he's given, and the other characters sort of give the the time and the space to to Quint to sort of let all of this out into the into the open and letting him be vulnerable. And that removing of of the cap as well is also sort of you know you can see more of his face, you can see his eyes. Uh, he is opening up to these characters and and being able to sort of see his face fully and not have him um, shrouded with with any shadows or clothing sort of covering his face, I think is is very, very important for this moment of really breaking down the walls of of Quint and and what we're learning about him. 
And actually something, I guess, related to that a little bit is um, how the other characters are shot in this scene as well. And we do see all three. We see Brody very, very briefly um, right towards the end of this moment. But um, Hooper is, is sort of still sat in his position on the table. Um, but that lovely uh, swinging lamp that we've spent a lot of time talking about is creating just some really interesting shadows across uh, Dreyfus's face that I just thought was was really, really great. You can see him, you can see his expressions, but there are moments when the sort of uh, shadows being cast across his face mean you can't see him fully. Um, and Brody is still sort of like stood in the shadows a little bit, but this is Quint's moment. So he is very well lit <laughs> in this scene. We can see his face fully and clearly, uh, both because of the the lighting and also him removing that cap. So yeah, a lot of a lot of significance in just uh, taking off the hat. <laughs> wow. Also, uh, this is Quint in transition, right? So this is where this mm-hmm. is where we see him open up to Brody and Hooper, and this is where the dynamic change is changes. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is where. They become talking about the group dynamics. This is the 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 they're coming out of the norming into the performing stage, right? So mm-hmm. you know, from here on out for the rest of the film, it's it's the lead up to the showdown with the shark. And also, the next time we see Quint with something on his head, it's the bandana, and he has that on for the rest of the movie. So this is the cap's gone now. Mm. He's no longer hiding behind this cap, um, and. You know, without getting too far ahead of my analysis for what's to come in a month and a half, um, (laughs) this this is this is Quint preparing for war as well. Mm -hmm. Like this is the first time he's opening up about his military past. Um, But when we see him next with something on his head, he's got that bandana. He is dressed like a soldier in the Vietnam War. uh, In the rest of the film because he's getting ready to do battle with the shark. And I will hold my, the rest of my analysis I have about the parallels with the Vietnam war and Quint and the shark, uh, for when we get there. But this is the transition into, I think the, both Quint preparing for this battle, but also the film really kind of reckoning with the war in a meaningful way in that, like it's sort of been alluded to. There's been the America of it all that we've talked about in like the the tourists on the menu scene and stuff like that and and this you know um when did the conflict in vietnam end when did vietnam end uh <clears throat> so yeah the war is still happening while they're making this movie the the war officially ends mm. april 30th 1975 so mm. the majority of the film is made while we're still in vietnam um mm-hmm. by we i mean the us i don't really know about the uk's involvement in the war but uh mm. You know, this is this is what almost every movie that came out around that time is about because it was like mm. a giant culturally significant event um, that like changed the fabric of America for a really long time, uh, forever, mm. forever. It changed it forever, and uh, this is the first time we see any sort of like real direct parallel is is in you know Quint talking about his experience in World War Two. That is be in a movie that is being filmed during the Vietnam era, and then it kind of acts as the launch pad into, among other things, 
the a real big Vietnam War metaphor uh, in for the the rest of the the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I had in my notes something um, along along those lines about um, Quint sort of preparing for war, like you say, MJ, and how um, this scene really kind of sets up his whole why. Like, I, for me, it seems like this guy, this character is jonesing for a shark fight the whole time. Like, he's been, <laughs> he's been, this is his career, it's his job, but he's almost been waiting for this significant, like, big enough challenge to really exercise some of the demons this, from the story he tells. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, whether whether he's been waiting for this moment of vengeance, you know, you don't go through something that he went through and come out okay you know part what um part of preparing for the pod this this podcast i kind of read some of the accounts of the people that were you know part of the the real experience and it honestly gave me some some interesting nightmares um Mm. and so it just you know it is kind of it's the moment i think you emotionally connect to quinn you know you might like his character Mm -hmm. and find him you know, amusing and interesting and maybe slightly mysterious throughout the whole of the film, but it's really this moment where he's he's kind of coming coming clean almost with the story, maybe has survivor's guilt, you know. Um, he kind of references the time that he was yeah. most scared later on, but I won't go, and that's a few episodes uh, <laughs> uh, in, uh, in advance, but... Um, yeah, I think you know this is kind of like his his the pinnacle of his moment. Like, I w- I wouldn't say he has a death wish. It kind of feels a bit like that from 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 the scenes that Quint's in following this. But I think it just adds so much context to why he is the way he is, and you know this kind of like almost death wish style kind of carefreeness that he has. Carefreeness is definitely a word. <laughs> it is now. If you can say it, it's a word. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I think, yeah, that's, um, yeah, you know, he's kind of, yeah, like I said, been kind of jonesing for this this fight his whole life, mm. or, you know, since, since this uh, incident he talks about. Yeah. Well, it's it's all driven by his PTSD, right? Mm. Like it's mm-hmm. ve- very obviously <laughs> uh this is a character with with PTSD. And I think I, I think we mentioned it on the other episode of like the whole movie can be surmised in like uh men will literally go hunt down a killer shark instead of going to therapy. <laughs> and uh I present exhibit A. <laughs> um, it's the Indianapolis speech. Yeah, exhibit Q, Quint. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, Yeah, I would pick up on a a couple of things that that you guys have mentioned. This idea of survivor's guilt and also revenge. Uh, Mm. These are some things that we sort of really start to to see more clearly uh, as, as Quint gives his speech. And with... Brody and Hooper, we're fairly clear on their motivations and why they are on this boat right now. 
um, because we have learned what we need to learn about these characters prior to this, and, and, and we know that you know Hooper is there as uh, as sort of the shark expert. He knows what he is doing. He knows how to track sharks. He knows how to find them, um, and has got all the sort of high tech equipment that can help them do that. Brody is is really, I guess, just motivated by this sense of sense of duty and also wanting to protect his home and protect his family and that's really his clear motivation and that was what we saw in the whole first half of the film really is Brody trying to keep the the town and his kids and family safe um so we we have all that information about Brody and Hooper we don't really have that much information about Quint up until this point and then this is when we really learn everything there is uh that we need to know about about Quint without the sort of you know I was born in this place and, you know, the whole sort of potted history of Quint, which which isn't relevant. Um, but we get this sort of long, uninterrupted speech where we find out why Quint does what he does. Um, and he's not just a fisherman. He's not just a guy who can uh, sort of go out and, 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 and kill sharks and, and get money for it, basically. Um a key part of his motivation and why he does what he does is for revenge. I, I, I can't help but think that that is one of his strongest motivators, if not the strongest motivator, is that he went through this incredibly traumatic event where he almost died and a lot of his sort of like friends and uh, and, and comrades died in, in this event and he survived. Uh, and that is something that he holds with him and continues to hold with him and and that is one of the things that sort of motivates him i guess to to go out and and kill these sharks because you know his his uh cabin that we spent a bit of time in earlier in the film is is full of the sort of um trophies i guess of of his various kills and you know the shark jaws all over the walls um, he's clearly very good at what he does and he's very successful, but he continues to do it. You know, he doesn't just go, well, that's it. I've killed enough sharks now. Um, part of me is like, I mean, he he mentions later in the speech, I think, about how many men died um, in the Indianapolis attack. And part of me is like, is he trying to like <laughs> kill as many sharks um, mm. as sort of like, you know, buddies were lost? And I'd never really connected those those dots before and that is just pure speculation because that is those are not words uttered by quint that is not something the film tells us that is just me sort of reading reading into possibilities about why he just continues to like keep going keep going keep going keep tracking down these sharks um keep killing these sharks but yeah there's there's clearly uh revenge in his heart <laughs> and on his mind uh is is why he has this sort of chosen career and the the guilt as well that that he is one of the ones that survived and so that must be something that he carries with him as well and like well all of those people didn't survive but i was the one who did um so yes mm. rather than <laughs> addressing that through any kind of uh therapy or trying to sort of like heal from that uh his way of, of healing from that is to basically kill the thing that killed all his all his buddies and there's just something so I don't know, I guess just chilling about that. I'm not sure if that's if that's the right word and maybe I'll I'll come upon a better word whilst we're sort of continuing to talk about it, but just that that is the sort of the thing that that really drives him um 
I think is just really stark when you sort of sit back and, and think about it. And this scene really puts us in the shoes of Quint um, better than I guess any other moment in the film does really, because it is just him talking and talking about his experiences and um, the, the film and, you know, the script and everything else has enough sense to sort of not um, over explain itself. You know, we are the ones now over analyzing <laughs> this, this scene and, and picking out all the things that we need to pick out, but you can connect those dots in, in your head easily enough. Uh, the film doesn't need to handhold and I think that's just part of the reason why this this scene is so great and there's a lot in the particular things that Quint says in this little bit that we're talking about that I I will get on to but yeah this this idea of um, revenge and, and survivor's guilt I think is really one of the sort of defining things about Quint as as we start to to learn more and more about him mm, I like the um <clears throat> The point about how, you know, you made about how Brody, we kind of get Brody, we get Hooper, you know, throughout the film, their motivation, um, Quint's a bit more of a mystery up until mm. almost towards the end of the film. And it kind of is paralleled, that horror, this, you know, this story of horror is kind of paralleled with roughly around the same time we actually get a good look of the, you know, the, the antagonist of the film but you might say, you know, mm -hmm. the, the actual shark. We don't get a good look at it for such a long time, famously. And then they, these two kind of moments of, you know, horror being revealed to us kind of happen around the same time. I quite like that that, that mm -hmm. parallel. And I guess, like, thinking about, you know, if Quinn, the, the point about killing, killing, you know, sharks to kind of maybe number the, the number of men that were killed, that were lost... <clears throat> You kind of think maybe if Quinn had gone to had gone to therapy, you know, like uh, decades later when it was maybe more acceptable for, you know, maybe more acceptable to him to go to something like therapy, he'd be continually asked, you know, how many sharks are going to be enough? Like, how many do you have to kill mm -hmm. to reckon this with yourself and find some kind of peace? Yeah, I am. Um... I am a white male in my 30s, so uh, much like the draft was, I am legally obligated to start watching The Sopranos. And um, <clears throat> so I've done that uh, because I saw the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark and was like, that looks pretty good. I should watch the show. And then I found out that the film was directed by the guy who made Thor The Dark World and Terminator Genesis. And I was like, ah, oh, well, nevertheless. But... Uh, <laughs> The show's very good, but there's a, there's an episode that I've learned since is uh, sort of the, they, they, they view it as like the defining moment of the show. It's the fifth episode of the first season, which this is not a Sopranos podcast, so I will spare you talking about like, if the fifth episode is the catalyst for the rest of your series, you've made a great series. Anyway, the show's really good, <laughs> but um, there's this scene, because, uh, you know, t like, one, Tony's in therapy a lot over the course of the show, if uh, you're unfamiliar with the show. It was actually, I think, one of the the big catalysts for normalizing. Anyway, so uh, Tony's in therapy over the course of the show, but this, this episode, he takes his daughter, Meadow, to visit a college, and it's the first time in the episode, or in the series, that we see him physically kill someone. So 
pr- prior to this uh spoilers for like the 20 year old season of television i don't know what to tell you uh <laughs> so it's the first time we see him kill someone himself before that he's you know he's he's upper management in the mafia that he's a part of so he's delegating all these tasks to other people so this is the first time we see tony hands on but over the course of the episodes prior to that his daughter is getting real suspicious of like hey why is there money always like why why is mom always got these jewels like dad's in dad's a garbage man and we're you know in this house like how many other people on our street are garbage men so she's kind of starting to put two and two together and there's a scene when they're driving where she asks him outright like hey are you part of the mafia and he's like no you know i do you know there is some illegal gambling that i'm involved with like he kind of pushes it under the rug and by the end of the episode she definitely knows but doesn't confront him about it but there's a key scene in that show which is <laughs> in that episode which is what i'm going to relate to here in a, a restaurant where they're talking about um they're you know they're trying to be more open and honest with each other and you know he's not quite letting on what's going on with him but he's being maybe a little more open but still kind of dodgy and she fully opens up to him and is like hey last week uh my friend and i tried speed for the first time because we had a big test we needed to study for and like he does not react well at all like she thinks that she's being really honest and open with her dad and that she can tell him anything and then he's like what the fuck what do you mean you were on drugs last week um so he freaks out but in that scene she's completely lit and he is very much in shadow uh, almost to the point where watching the the scene this week, Brody's lit almost exactly the way Tony is in that scene. It really called to mind that mm-hmm. scene in the the episode for me, and uh, in the, but in this scene, obviously Quint would be the the Meadow character, right? He's completely in the light, and then uh, Brody is in the dark. Now Brody's obviously not withholding information. Well, he is, right? He's withholding his scar information. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also in the dark about what happened on the Indianapolis. So, you know, mm. Hooper knows what happened on the Indianapolis and Quint has firsthand information. So, you know, Hooper's ne- I, it seems like Hooper has never talked to anyone on the Indianapolis, but he knows. So he's mostly in the light. And then Quint is fully in the light. And then Roy Shire, or Brody is fully in darkness, basically. Um, to where he's almost like, you almost can't see him, uh, particularly because he's got that, that black turtleneck on. So it's just really interesting the way that this scene is lit to show like the different pieces of information all three men have in regards to this event, uh, at all. Do you think it's strange? Oh, sorry, Sarah. (laughs) I was just like, consider my mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say, do you think it's strange that Brody hasn't heard of heard of the Indianapolis and what happened? So obviously, you know, it, it really makes sense for someone like Cooper to to have heard about it and and know about it. But it seems like such a a big event that maybe more people would have known about it. I I mean I I did think about this as well, and the only thing I could come up with is that <laughs> because. Brody has himself got a, a fear of of the water because of some traumatic incident. Maybe he has just <laughs> sheltered himself from all like stories of traumatic water based uh, incidents, just to, <laughs> so he, just so he can get some sleep at night. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I I mean, I confess to not being familiar with this until Jaws. Um, so I don't know if that is, is the same experience for, for you guys as well, but this was not an event that I that I knew about until Jaws, and maybe that just makes me a bad person, I don't know. But obviously, after hearing it talked about uh, in this, then I, I did sort of read read up on it, and I think it's just... The fact that it is a real event and something that did happen, I think, is so important that it's included in this film because I think, you know, some people who want to try and find fault in Jaws would be like, well, you know, it's unrealistic that the shark is behaving in this way and the shark is doing this thing and that's not what a real shark would do and (laughs) all the rest of it. But anchoring it with this sort of very real uh, shark event uh that sort of happened i think just adds something to the film i i couldn't imagine jaws now without this without this moment and without you know one of the characters being part of that i think it completely changes um everything about the film really you know it's not we need to have this extra layer to quint we need to have this sort of vulnerable side that that makes us you know care about him even more because up to this point he has been this sort of like obnoxious dirty limerick uh you know most of the time drunk barking orders um and we find that funny uh sure but we're now really seeing the the human side of him and i think it's it's so important that it that it is included, but yeah, not uh, I'm I'm Brody. I was in the dark mm. um, about the the true horrors uh, of of the Indianapolis until I saw Jaws. So yeah, the 2012 I think was the first time I saw I saw Jaws. So um, at peak Jaws obsession, um, I I right. was very keen to, <laughs> to sort of find out everything about it so that's when I sort of learned about it yeah I think I did not know for a long time that it was real and then I think in passing my dad uh, kind of made a comment about it and I was like what that's a true story yeah wow <laughs> god and then yeah 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 I-, I knew it was real just based on the <clears throat> context of the film I think but also I came sure. to the movie late right I was like a teenager. Mm. Um, or I might have been in my early 20s at that point. Um, yeah, I was in my early 20s at that point. So, <laughs> I, you know, I could tell that it was definitely a real event that they had framed it around. But if I'm being super honest, I haven't done too much research about it. Um, and, you know, my, my only other big thing about it was the Nicolas Cage movie, which I haven't seen. But, uh, you know, finding out that that movie was going to happen and just being like, Nicholas Cage is making a movie about the Indianapolis. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, I have not seen it uh, yet. And mm. I have seen a lot of shark films, so surprising. All around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, about not knowing is, I mean, this was an off-the-book super secret mission, right? Like, this is, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, this is not something that the U.S. wanted getting out because of how much it changed the tide of the war. And then also... I think uh, public perception of the use of the bomb didn't go necessarily the way they thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a shame on our country a little bit to uh, to acknowledge anything around it. So I think mm-hmm. people not being super well informed isn't necessarily that surprising um, yeah. about, you know, 
this event. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I like I do like how it kind of it ties, you know, using a real story, a real and and you know talking about delivering the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb, you know, the, probably one of the most famous bombs ever. Um, mm-hmm. and and linking it and like kind of anchoring the whole film and the whole of the story of Jaws to something that's real that people definitely know about. They may not know about the Indianapolis, but they do know about the war, the Hiroshima bomb. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever a film does that, it does kind of, it does kind of almost authenticates a lot of the film. It, it, it tying it in with something that's real kind of just makes it, a, yeah. I think, a little bit more tangible, a little bit more possible. Mm. Yeah, I think also the, the other thing, too, is is knowing about the, the Indianapolis, that it it's not a super well-known event. Mm-hmm. Um, so tying a character to it is actually really interesting, unlike, you know, and no, <laughs> I'm going to tread lightly here, no disrespect, but... I feel like there's, uh, you can, you kind of roll your eyes when something gets connected to, uh, to like nine 11. Um, nowadays, one, one example I'm thinking of is that Robert Pattinson. (laughs) Yeah. Remember me. Yeah. Exactly. Remember me. Um, which like that one is just like (laughs) a surprise (laughs) about nine 11 credits. Uh, Oh. And you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> that was the biggest double take I've ever done in a cinema, I think. I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> yeah, I think I screamed like, what the hell yeah. in the cinema like when that <laughs> happened. Because I was just I, like, it really, it was like the film had slapped me around the face. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is a this is a 9-11 film. No, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I don't need that. Just no. Mm. <laughs> uh that is uh it's a it's a film that i didn't see i haven't seen it but when i found out the twist uh i really wanted to go because i found it out while while it was still in theaters and i wanted to go see it with an unsuspecting audience to just watch them be like <laughs> what <laughs> yeah me i was the unsuspecting yeah. audience <laughs> yeah i think uh well that one and then the the other one that was kind of not very good it just felt so manipulative i think that's the thing right is tying something Mm. to historical events can be a shortcut to emotional manipulation uh the other example that was explicitly about 9-11 and i think people knew about going in is extremely loud and incredibly close Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. which is just like i've fucking tom hanks died in 9-11 deal with this you're like what Mm. Yeah, that uh, there's ways of of doing it, and I think that you know tying Quint to to Indianapolis or or having that reference in Jaws, it completely works because, like you're saying, this you know uh, people know about about Hiroshima, so like hearing that mentioned, that will be I think the moment when people go, oh, okay, mm. that's what they're talking about. But the mission of the Indianapolis, like you said, it was secret it it was you know sort of um kept kept under wraps uh because you know it's yeah all the reasons that that we won't get into but it it works and it doesn't feel because it's not used as a twist i think that's 
It's not like, well, surprise, Quint was on the Indianapolis. Like, and he like died, women. and now they're on a boat with Quint's ghost. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> that changes the film. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, I guess yeah. we don't know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> plot twist: uh, Quint is a ghost. Uh, poor Confirms. Quinn. He's been Je- he's been Jesus. He's now a ghost. I mean, I... <laughs> the Holy Ghost. Away. <laughs> that was the most reluctant way. <laughs> yeah, I almost didn't want to admit it was funny, but it was. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it is handled in a in a uh, mercifully uh, better way than it is in uh, Remember Me because that happens in like the closing moments of the film like you said it is literally like oh he's in a building and then it just like it pans out and then you're like oh no <laughs> like and then it just leaves it and that's that is where the film ends right i've I've seen that film once and i never yeah. want to see it again but i feel like yeah, it's uh, literally credits it's definitely like <laughs> what a film student in their first year of film school would be like and then guess what it's 9-11 mm-hmm. and like just think like it's the best kind of twist ever and that it'll get re- like you know it'll get people in the feels but mm-hmm. yeah it's bad yeah it's it's very uh like a child telling a story mm. or like a made-up story it's like just exaggerated to the point it's like and then the dinosaur came along and it's like okay all right <laughs> i believed it up to that point but we're dancing now... around the fact that we're we're just talking about max landis movies <laughs> whoops that's it that's that's all of them it's like yeah. it's this surprise it's secretly the zodiac killer or whatever the fuck like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> glad that uh, glad that Jaws doesn't uh, do that. And I think actually the 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 placing of like where this um, like where this speech is in the film is is important. It's not too early, so that there's you know um, that it's not you know this isn't the first thing we learn about Quinn. It comes at exactly the right time when you know we've talked about those those walls sort of gradually starting to come down and you know they've broken bread and they've had a laugh together and they have bonded and that's when quint sort of feels comfortable to to share this information but also there's not much of the film left after this point and and not to fast forward ahead to when we get to the end of indianapolis but uh, the way this scene finishes is with them like singing a song together so it's not even this sort of like dark cloud looming over the rest of the yeah. film it is mm. said it is put out into the open the brody and hooper they sit and they listen to it and they absorb it and then they carry on it's so it's just perfect it's so perfectly executed just start to finish and i mean obviously we're just talking about the the start of it this week but it's where it comes in in the film and it always always happens like earlier i think than i expect it to or or maybe i just think there's less of the film after it i think that's what it is like when it gets to indianapolis i'm like oh the film is almost over but we still have like a half hour left um at this point because i always just think of it happening so so late into the film and you know after this quint quint dies spoiler and that's it um but it's yeah how much we have before and how much we have after i think is just right Uh, please if that was a spoiler to you reach out (laughs) 
Yeah, if I spoil Quint dying for you, please let me know. Uh, I would like to know. I would like to hear from the person who's listened to 57 hours of this and been like, he what? Yeah, yeah. This is how they're watching the film. Like, they're, they're not. It's just us talking about it. Uh, it's a long way to go about watching a film, but uh, yep. welcome, I guess. Uh, yeah, glad you're here. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, yep. Maybe see a therapist. <laughs> Do what Quint should yeah. have done. What's that? Yes. Do what Quint should have done. Go to therapy. No. Yes. Do what Quint should have done. Uh, so my broken brain, this is off the rails in my head now. Uh, my broken brain realized that, uh, oh God, I don't want to say this. Um <laughs> A couple weeks ago, we realized that there were only two filmmakers who would have uh, the gall enough to try to remake this film. And then I realized there's only one screenwriter who would have the gall to rewrite it. And it is, in fact, Max Landis. Uh, (laughs) I I want it. I genuinely think, like, Jaws being remade has been, like, a a constant fear of mine. (laughs) Like, uh, just forever. Mm -hmm. Just, like, someone's going to do it, surely. And then... uh, uh, yeah, I think it's inevitable. Why? Mm. <laughs> I think the yeah. only way that you could really get away with it, and this would be a hilarious failure, is to make it the book. Like, just make it right, well, yeah. cl- oh, sure. closer to the book. Like, that's mm-hmm. the only way I think people would be like, well, that's not the dumbest idea I've ever heard, except that that's a very bad book, and I don't know why you would try to make it like the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm with you, Rachel. I sometimes just wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night thinking about them remaking Jaws and it's, you know, I I will be going to therapy now uh, to to recover from thinking about a Jaws remake. Yeah. Penned by Max Landis. Uh... Yeah, well, <laughs> I feel sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't great. It was not a great thought that I had. Not, not in my top 10 favorite thoughts I've ever had. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh... Um, all right, I just <laughs> getting back to to this scene. I again, this is probably me like uh put in pins in a board with lots of uh uh lines going between them and just sort of making connections with uh the rest of the film. But in this uh small little segment of the the speech and I I copied it from the the script that I have as well. Um there's a couple of things in it where I was just like okay, this is probably just a coincidence, but it's going to be fun to to pick these out anyway. Um, the first thing I want to mention is, uh, so in this bit, Quint says that you didn't see the first shark for about a half an hour. And I was mm. like, oh, I wonder how long it is until Jaws that we first see the shark. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not half an hour. Um, ah. We sort of, <laughs> we catch like the first glimpse of the shark. Um, the weird like shape in the water Whoa. thing is when we first see the shark when Alex okay Pinter hang on is... hang on hang on hang on though hang... Oh. sorry sorry he mentions it's a tiger shark at what point do we see the tiger shark yeah i'm getting there <laughs> okay 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 i sh- sorry for doubting you no no mj just coming sprinting in on my <laughs> um, sorry, that yes. felt like i was in an escape room and i had realized the the puzzle yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. So we see we see the the glimpse of the shark like seventeen minutes in when Alex Kintner is killed, um, and then I was like, I wonder what we see at half an hour in. So I, <laughs> I went forward a little bit, um, and it's not quite exactly half an hour. It's not exactly perfect, but we do see the the tiger shark. Um, being sort of hooked up on the dock at 32 minutes and 47 seconds. And you better believe I got the exact timestamp because uh, that is what we do here. Um, and yeah, it is, uh, it is a tiger shark. Uh, I did write that down in my notes because this is our second mention of a tiger shark. So my notes oh, naturally what? say, oh, oh what? what? <laughs> <laughs> um, because you can't say tiger shark without following it with that. Um, so I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. Um, and also as well, um, we talked about it a, a few weeks ago now, but sort of when they really get their first good look at the shark when it's going past the boat. And I think Hooper says um, that's a 20 footer and uh, Quint corrects him and says 25. Um, mm. We get a sort of like a, a reference in this part of the Indianapolis speech of like how Quint can just know that instantly. Um, and he says uh, 13 footer, uh, you know, that when you're, you know how you know that, I think when you're in the water, Chief, um, you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. So clearly experienced uh, and because of, a, you know, a traumatic event and something very bad that happened, um, Quint is, you know, has got that expertise and is able to just identify the the size of a shark based on, you know, what he can see uh, from dorsal to the tail and, and working it out in that way. So I just thought that was... Uh, an interesting callback we've got a little bit of foreshadowing happening in this chunk as well oh there's a lot going on i've highlighted it in my uh, in my notes because i got so excited um he talks right at the start about a submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side it is mm. in a few minutes that we see the shark attacks the side of the boat so mm. a little bit of foreshadowing there um and the vessel going down in 12 minutes now i did not scrub ahead to see if it takes 12 minutes for the orca to sink um but it's not far off um so Come on. you're welcome i present <laughs> all of this information to you do, shit. do with it what you will <laughs> um, okay from roughly <laughs> 130 to roughly mm -hmm. 142 would be mm -hmm. um let's see <laughs> Uh, ooh. Uh, it's, um, no, it's a while. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's a good long while. Yeah. Because Hooper's got to go in the cage still. Mm-hmm. All that. I think if, if you go from, I guess, like, the moment that you sort of really start seeing the, the orca start to go down, you know, when they're, like, um flushing out all the water and everything i mean it's not right. exact but it isn't it doesn't it's like take six long. minutes yeah uh, yeah it doesn't it doesn't take long for the orca to to sink and obviously considerably smaller than a submarine so you know relative yeah, <laughs> yeah. well the the indianapolis wasn't a submarine considerably smaller than a oh. battleship yes my bad <laughs> but smaller the orca is smaller yes. than that. yes much smaller yes <laughs> Is that the bigger boat that uh, Brody wants? Is it just a, oh. yeah. <laughs> just a, a boat the size of two football fields, please? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. I think he would be much more comfortable on that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. 100%, yeah. but much better. No. <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah. There is so much <laughs> foreshadowing in that whole speech as well. Like uh, from mm-hmm. the bit, you know, Quince almost foretelling his own death and, you know, being sort of bitten in half. Uh, yeah. That's a bit later on. Spoiler uh, alert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know what, too? He says no distress signal was sent. Yeah. And what does he do later? He sabotages yeah. the possibility yeah. of a distress signal from the Orca. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, he's huh. recreating the conditions yeah. uh, under which he, he suffered this trauma to resolve it that ultimately ends with his death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my, my tiny mind was blown yeah. when I... I just... I looked at the... I did look at the full monologue as well because i i will save sort of the the bits of foreshadowing or references to to things that happen earlier in the film for for when we get to those bits but yeah right. the, you're you're completely right rachel as well you're sort of like foreshadowing his own his own death and the way it happens as well and there's it's kind of okay. it's really eerie it adds like a an extra sort of like chilling layer to this to this speech which is already harrowing like to to hear about um but when you sort of like place it uh in the context of of the film and sort of look at it as like oh this is you know something that that happens or something that has happened already and you're starting to draw the parallels um even though completely different uh scenarios you're starting to draw the parallels between what happened to him what happened to Quint then and what happened to him now. And I think even if you're not super familiar with the film from the moment this Indianapolis speech starts and you start thinking about, you know, this survivor's guilt that he carries and all the rest of it, you sort of start to put those pieces together in your head, which is why we don't feel bad about spoiling it. And also, you know, it came out in 1975. So deal with it. Is that you are starting to put those pieces together. I think of just like, that was the way it happened then and you sort of get this sense of in weird way like history repeating itself kind of thing and this feeling very final for some of these characters and it's yeah the fact that Quint is the one delivering this monologue I think you start to feel that dread in the pit of your stomach that like he is not going to be the one to to survive this and of the three he is the only one who doesn't as well so it just it just I mean what a film what a scene what a monologue uh it just adds so much to to what is already such a great scene just like really drilling it down into like this this tiny tiny amount of detail is is just incredible i'm i'm hype for indianapolis month (laughs) yeah yeah the way he takes that sip from the cup as well i feel that in my soul like it's just Mm. like this i need this to like even Mm -hmm. continue getting out these words like tell the story just kind of yeah. like throws it back kind of slams it down almost mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah, um coffee no yeah, yeah, no it's, it's not coffee it's a great um it's a great natural pause as well because i think that i mean it helped me obviously in breaking up the scene because <laughs> i was like where do i stop it um i tried to sort of go with like when there was a break in speaking so it wasn't like halfway through a sentence or when there was like a pause or a cut or whatever so glad that uh, mm-hmm. him taking a sip of his beverage was there for for my benefit um but also just you you can't just have well i mean you can you know just have someone delivering this long monologue but there has to be sort of other things there like keeping it engaging and when you are telling a story or talking for a long period of time yes you do you know 
pick up your pick up a drink or whatever and there are like natural pauses even if you are just sort of like giving this this long point or or making this point or giving this speech like you know we're all on a podcast right now and i imagine they've all got sort of like a glass of water or something by us and when there's like a moment you you sort of take a natural pause in in speaking or when someone else is to to have a drink so it's just it's it's good that there's those moments when you can sort of like let out a breath um because it is very intense and Mm. it's particularly intense the way that quint is looking at Brody this this whole time and obviously Brody is the one who asked the question so naturally Quint is sort of like not just looking at him but addressing him um I think he says chief twice in just this uh little chunk that we're talking about so even though Hooper is there and listening attentively as well this is being said to Brody and Quint barely breaks eye contact uh with him he's got those sort of incredible like piercing blue eyes just really really intense uh moment where he is sort of like looking at Brody and I had to remind myself that Brody is you know the one who he is talking to because I find it very easy to get kind of like caught up in this scene and I'm listening to Quint so attentively that I almost feel like he is talking directly to to me or to us or to the audience which mm. is you know a weird thing to think about but then you're like oh he's you know <laughs> he's talking to Brody Brody's here as well and there is that sort of brief cut um over to Brody so we're we're aware of his presence still uh in the scene as well but yeah I oh what a great <laughs> what a film <laughs> um yeah the last thing I kind of have is um the tooth is still missing in this part mm. yeah yeah we need to retcon ourselves here because uh we got it wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah is it uh is it missing the whole monologue though or are there cuts where it's it's not i can't tell um mm. i'm gonna be looking out for it because i that was yeah. the first thing i wrote in in my notes was like okay we were wrong tooth is missing <laughs> <laughs> at least in this bit anyway yeah <laughs> yeah i don't think he yeah i think it's missing the whole time well, good job, continuity people, because I would expect that to not be a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as it's like, I mean, the next day or certainly later, like whenever he had sobered up enough to mm-hmm. to actually deliver this this speech. So, yeah, kudos. We were, I think, uh, on a few episodes back, we sort of said like, you see him take out the tooth, but you never you never see him put it back in, and and we both thought that the tooth was in. Um, during this speech maybe it comes back we'll uh we'll certainly be on the lookout for it yeah there's, tooth watch. there's a tooth watch the perfect film for tooth watch um, <laughs> tooth watch 2021 <laughs> that's the next shark film that surely has to come out tooth watch, tooth watch. <laughs> coming to a cinema near you would watch yeah. <laughs> i think there's like um there's so many stories about how many takes and, you know, Robert Shaw maybe having some some real booze in that cup for his first his first shot at it. But, um, mm. you know, this is part of why I love the film. There's so much of this myth and legendary behind these stories um, mm. that I think that the, the whole speech was kind of a, a culmination of three different takes. Um, mm-hmm. And there's... Um, 
there's uh there's a great uh kind of uh breakdown of jaws by a guy called jamie benning who does a po- podcast called filmy mentories where he kind of patches in bits of um uh interviews from various people that worked on the film and actors and that kind of stuff where they talk about um how you can kind of tell with um robert shaw with quint during the speech which take it is by how much his eyes glisten so how much his like <laughs> eyes are slightly watery yeah, like ah, oh, that's the first shot he had at it and then um yeah because mm-hmm. it, it there's, there's there's several different kind of almost different changes of pace for him like he's looking up at Brody, he's smiling he's almost like almost trying to kind of put a brave face on what he's kind of talking about um and then there's those moments where he's like really like serious and so like sober in inverted commas mm-hmm. so I, I kind of just love all of those kind of stories and I also love the fact that we might not ever really know exactly what the truth kind of was because everybody yeah. you know it's like 40 plus years old people's memories and you know people have passed away since um mm. it's part of the great thing about Jaws all of that like myth mm-hmm. yeah Yeah, I think one of the the myths around this is that for some reason I think people like to think that this is was improv for some reason. Yeah, I've heard that. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I think I I think people just think that big speeches should be spontaneous and they're they're not. Um, (laughs) a lot of the times. I've heard that also about and this isn't it's a it's a long scene, um, but the other one I've heard that about is in Saving Private Ryan when Matt Damon is talking to Tom Hanks about catching his brother with the girl on top of the barn and like the place catching on fire or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that that story was improvised, but I don't know how true that is because it's there are just very specific comedic beats in that story <laughs> that feel like they were written. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking about it in a larger context of Spielberg movies. And he's not a super monologue heavy director um, mm-hmm. that I like now, unless they're sneaky. Like I can think of a few, this one, obviously um, I'm sure there's some in like the big heavy political shit that he's done. Like Lincoln, mm. I'm sure has one. And uh, I think Amistad has one. Cause it's a, it's, it's essentially a, 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 a legal drama. And that's the nature of those types of movies. <laughs> um schindler's list probably has one uh yeah schindler doesn't schindler give a speech uh at at one point but those are all like you know those are all historical dramas like they're all based in reality Mm -hmm. um even like saving private ryan i think has a small one from tom hanks about like why he fights or whatever Mm -hmm. but this is the longest one i was actually i looked up some of the other ones and this one is pushing three and a half-ish minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of them are roughly around one and a half to two and a half minutes. So this has, I think, the record. If, some, if someone knows of another one, let me know. But I think this has the record in Spielberg's career uh, for just like a character giving a speech. And I think that's great because... <laughs> I think for as much as we like a monologue that's as iconic as, you know, um, the Indianapolis speech, there are a 
dozen that are just really lazy. Mm-hmm. And so I like that, you know, Spielberg being this master filmmaker is someone who is not going to rely on that device unless it's absolutely called for. And here I think it's absolutely called for. Mm. Yeah. I didn't even think about it being like one of the the longer ones in the sort of canon of Spielberg monologues. But yeah, I guess you're right. And interesting as well that a lot of the other ones that appear in, in Spielberg movies are, like you said, sort of in the historical um type of dramas so this jaws isn't that but the moment they are talking about is a real thing that happened um so giving it that sort of like time and space and just having this really long monologue talking about this thing i think is is somewhat fitting i guess for you know that that's sort of then a device that we see spielberg use in his sort of more based on true story based on history films that come later yeah i mean i you know i might not make friends uh by saying this but one of the things uh one of the reasons i've only watched one episode of midnight mass so far is because there's so many monologues in the first episode that i was like "Ah, (laughs) are you kidding me like we've just halted this entire thing for someone to talk about all the construction that has happened for two minutes uh yeah it just it it was a lot it was a lot and from what i've heard it doesn't stop in that show um Mm. now i don't want to write it off having not seen all of it so i'll I'll give it a shot and i tend to like mike flanagan but it just felt it did feel really i don't want to say lazy because i it didn't feel necessarily lazy but it felt like we couldn't have broken this up over several conversations in your seven hour thing. Yeah. I, so I half watched it because it really spooked me, uh, but it mm. was on and it was happening in my house uh, because, my, because Martin was watching it. Um, he really, really liked it. I think it took him a couple of episodes to really get used to it. And there are, there are some sort of like long-ish monologues but it's mostly they're mostly in the form of like the sermons and stuff so it's kind of in keeping with like what the show is about but yeah i think you will really like it um i can't say i enjoyed it because one i only half watched it two the half that i did watch was mostly through my fingers um and three yeah I'm not a horror person. <laughs> I'm maybe not the right audience for it, but um, sure. for, from someone who does enjoy enjoy horror, which is um, my other half, then he enjoyed it a lot. So I don't know. Maybe if you can push, if you can push through the sort of the monologues, um, it gets better. I think <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Um, okay. But yeah. Mm. Uh, before we talk too much about Midnight Mass. Uh, which is yeah, not, not yeah, what our yeah. not what our podcast is about. Um, do we have any anything else on on this bit? I mean, I feel like there's a lot, but also I'm I feel like getting we're getting into sort of the the next weeks if we uh, if we dive yeah. too much into this scene. But um, mm. yeah, did you did you guys have anything anything that you didn't mention that you wanted to? I didn't. I'm I'm good. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <clears throat> no, I, I think one of my only other kind of comments was just about how how Quint commands a room he sure knows mm-hmm. he sure knows how to command a room get attention you know from the very first time we meet him obviously he's got this um 
much like Robert Shaw himself, you know, this very captivating quality. He knows how to get people's attention and, and hold it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that was my kind of yeah. final final thing that I noted. Yeah, I think it's it's in next week's scene where he saw, he talks about the the eyes of the shark and that's that's interesting and that's something that we've mentioned before in in Robert Shaw sort of having this like really like piercing blue eyes and you can't help but sort of like be captivated by by him when he is talking. He he knows how to make an entrance, he knows how to deliver a, a monologue and even though the sort of his opening monologue is considerably shorter than this one you know, he does get two sort of like very big like chunks of, of, of text to deliver and we hang on his on his every word and it's it takes, I think, an actor like Robert Shaw to deliver a monologue as, as well as this. That's not to say that other people can't do it, but you know, he was he was a stage actor and from that sort of um that that sort of old school actor you know where they started sort of doing Shakespeare and they started off on the stage and that's where their sort of like background is and then moving into to film television whatever um it's just different there's just a different way I think of delivering a monologue when you come from from that background and it is something you can uh improve and and train in but i i bet sort of you know actors now when when they are gearing up for a monologue it's they sort of go to that stage experience i think because it's just Mm. a very very different way um of acting you have to be able to command the attention of every single person in that theater and they're all looking at you in that moment um you need to be able to hold that hold that room and that's something that that Robert Shaw does, but he's you know he's not just holding the the room, the the set, uh, and the attention of the people in front of him. It's translating that to all of us, you know, watching it however many years later at at home and still commanding that, uh, still commanding our attention and, and holding our attention. I just think it's incredible. The man knows how to deliver a monologue, and it's this is one of the very very best film monologues, if not the best. I'd be willing to say that with all my jaws bias of uh, course but yeah <laughs> great dictator i would put up against it as maybe the only other one mm. the the, yeah. the speech from the end of great dictator but what i will say is i think great the great dictator monologue you have to watch the whole film to really get mm-hmm. it i think this you can watch by itself and you like if you showed someone who'd never seen Jaws this scene, they'd be like, what the, what, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what? I want to know more about that. I'm like, the great dictator scene, like you really need the rest of the film to hinge sure. uh, on on it, so. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, this, you take this scene out of the context of the film and it is a guy telling a story that yeah. fits into the film and is relevant mm. to the film, but is also something that you could just look at in isolation and study in isolation as well of just a really good way to 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 deliver a story and to and to deliver a story in a captivating way it is something that you can look at on its on its own but you know just glad that it exists within the within the context of the film as well i think it's it's incredibly different to what we've seen in in the rest of the film and it does stand out but it stands out for for all the right reasons um i think and oh boy are we gonna have a fun uh, <laughs> couple of weeks 
diving into the, into the rest of this scene uh already excited um okay i think i think we'll leave it there for today um rachel it's been wonderful to to finally have you on as one of the first yeah. people to reply to that tweet and, <laughs> and snatch up the uh, indianapolis speech uh which we then did, did break down into many more chunks so uh a lot of people are getting so, so a slice of the indianapolis pie if you will uh <laughs> but you are you are the first yes. so uh, an honor that's the true um, honor yes thank you <laughs> yeah, of course of course as the, as the first person to respond and scream indianapolis at us, <laughs> at us uh it was only right that we gave you the the first bit but um <laughs> if you have anything uh that you would like to plug uh then now is now is your chance and also let us know where we can find you on uh on social media as well yeah i'm i'm on twitter i'm at real rachel finch it's a bit confusing that's my old name my uh soon <laughs> my secret identity i guess um <laughs> um i've also got a podcast which i started in lockdown um it's got one season at the moment I have gone back to work, so sadly it has kind of fallen to the wayside a little bit, but there's, uh, it's called the Fan Made Film Podcast, and um, I really wanted to talk to um, filmmakers who had uh, professional kind of, you know, experienced filmmakers who had gone back to make uh, what are essentially fan films or love letters to films that they really liked, so... There's around, I think there's about 10 episodes in there talking from everything like Jaws, Indiana Jones, lots of Star Wars. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's on any way that you can uh, find a podcast. It's it's on there. I'd love for people to check it out. And hopefully I'll get to pick it up again one day because um, it was really good fun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, encourage people to to check that out. It's a, it's a real fun listen. Um, so you can, even if there's only a, a, a few episodes to listen to or, or one season, then you can... Uh, you can binge that nice and easily. So, yeah. uh, and hopefully, we'll see its a uh, glorious return uh, when you're <laughs> when you're able to. Um, MJ, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Yes, uh, Real Perspective back semi regularly. Um, we just released an episode on No Time to Die. Uh, new logos up, looks great. Um, upcoming episodes, you should be able to hear one of these we're recording to both of them this week so squid game is coming out i think this week probably the same day you're hearing this so we did an episode on squid game which is very good television and then uh we are doing an episode on dune which i think will come out next week um but we're recording both of them this week so uh two-thirds of the host didn't like it and one of them hasn't seen it yet so <laughs> Yeah, I've not, I've not seen Dune yet. I've been busy getting married. Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought you went with Martin to see it. No, I was going to, and then it was, uh, it was uh, when he went to see it. It was like only a week or so before going, and I checked to see how busy the screen was, and there was a lot of people. When I was like, I don't want to get COVID before <laughs> my wedding, so sure. um, I didn't go. Martin still went, but it meant me not going meant he had an empty seat next to him, so he did at least mm. get to distance <laughs> from the other yeah, people in nice. the cinema, but um, yeah, we're going to hopefully see it in... Uh, we might treat ourselves to IMAX as well, as you Ooh. know, a little... Uh... I, saw it, I saw it in IMAX. I... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I randomly found out that where my mother-in-law lives has apparently the best IMAX screen in the state of Colorado. So nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's the sort of film that needs to needs to be seen in IMAX. So um, yeah, we'll we'll check June out soon. But uh, speaking speaking of 
kind of. Um, I just before getting married, I <laughs> managed to write a quick uh, Looper article about the internet's favorite boy, uh, Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> who was is in uh, Dune and French Dispatch, which in the oh, UK yeah. came out on the same day, which is Came wild. out on the same day here. No, it came out one week later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> real close together. So he's having, a, he's having a real moment, which I feel he has just been having for a few years now. But um, yeah. I got to write a really, really fun article about um, sort of the highlights of his career so far and his best performances. Um, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun to write. I'll... I'll probably tweet out the link uh, or you can just rummage amongst the wedding pictures on my Twitter and, and find that article somewhere. Um, but yeah, that one was uh, was a lot of fun to write. Um, I feel like we will probably talk more about my nuptials on next week's episode uh, based on mm-hmm. the guest that we, <laughs> that we have on. So maybe I'll, I'll save it for that. But um, a, a thank you to everyone who sent us... Um, sent me and martin uh well wishes um both from through the the pod twitter and my own twitter and have been quite overwhelmed uh by all of the love that that we've received so that's been been really really nice and i am absolutely exhausted if i sound insane at all on this episode or mix up my words or anything like that um it was four days ago that we got married uh not sure I've slept properly in about two weeks and, and I'm just in a happy little bubble at the moment and very much enjoying that. Um, so yes, my uh, husband, <laughs> which is wild to say, uh, is our guest next week. So um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into the speeches and how many Jaws references I managed to get into my speech on <laughs> next week's episode. Um, <laughs> uh, there were other jaws references in other people's speeches may i add uh we'll we'll save that for next week um okay before we get too sidetracked in wedding chat you can find uh us on twitter we are at jaws for a minute you can find me i am at sarah buddery and mj is at mj smith 891 um so you can dm us on there or if you don't use twitter you can contact us uh, by sending us an email jaws for a minute at gmail.com uh, and you can also follow us on uh, Instagram, uh, Instagram to, to normal people, uh, at Jaws for a Minute on there as well. A um, couple of ways that you can support the show. So you can rate, review and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Um, tell everyone you know about us. That helps uh, to, to boost our numbers up and, and more people find the show. And, and we, uh, yeah, we love to hear about new people finding us uh, even you know 57 or so episodes in um is always great to hear uh you can purchase our merchandise through t public and redbubble uh i can assure you that there are uh, as many a sale particularly on t public um in the month of november i got an email mm-hmm. through today where basically for almost the entire month uh, there is a sale over at t public so if you have been waiting to purchase yourself uh, a piece of merchandise or you want someone to buy it for you for the holidays or you want to buy everyone you know inexplicably uh, even if they've never heard of us some piece of merchandise then that is going to be your chance to do that um, so yeah you can find that on Public and Redbubble but would probably recommend Public whilst they've got a sale on um, the link to find those is in our Twitter bio and as always a huge thank you to Alex who is at Hex Ghosts on Twitter for his incredible designs uh, you can purchase our theme song 
the link uh, to do that is in our link tree on our Twitter bio. Uh, or if you go to at Kristen Falls Music on Instagram, the link is in her bio as well. You can support the show by buying us a coffee. Always appreciated. And if you do that, not only we get a shout out on the show, but you will also be entered into a contest to win a piece of merch. Uh, so definitely worth doing that. Again, you can find the link uh, for our coffee page in our Twitter bio, along with all our other links and information as well. So until next time, it's Jaws O'Clock somewhere. <laughs>